This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. My guest today is a she. So let's see what her Republic of INSEAD O3D entry from 20 years ago had to say about her. Emanating war- warmth and sincerely fond of people, she is a beautiful example of INSEAD diversity. An Eastern European, a Norwegian, and an Oxford math professor, she views life as a journey of exploration and her achievements as stepping stones in this journey. Striving to apply herself outside of academia, she embarked on studying business fundamentals from scratch and brought wonderfully different insights to those of the traditional business peoples. Her passion for living the life to the fullest is truly admirable. An NBA Olympics swim team co-captain, a Scandinavian week coordinator, a student government member, and a summer diving trip to Egypt organizer. Are there more than one of her? So what's next for this person? She aspires to lead a big research-oriented high-tech organization in a creative and people-focused way. We have no doubts that her next venture will be a success and that she will continue touching people's lives in a very positive way. End of quotation. Not that many Eastern European women with a Norwegian connection and Oxford Academia lineage in our group So I suspect lots of people are guessing the name of my guest today, but I'll keep the suspension for now. Welcome to the podcast. First off, before I forget, I was recording with Andrew Booth last night and he asked that I pass his very best greetings to you. He had lots of nice things to say. (laughs) So happy to be finally able to catch up. Uh, It's been a long while and you've been very, very busy, I know, Uh, but I let you tell us all about it. Can you run us through the last 20 years in your life, the five minute style elevator pitch? <laughs> Thank you, Milena. I was actually wondering, did, you know, do I dare to go to the reunion in October? There'll be so many people I haven't seen for a long time. And, you know, will we will we be able to, to, to uh, you know, catch up where we left off the last time? And actually with this conversation, you are, you are giving me not just hope, but inspiration that it'll be great. So I really look forward to um, also catching up in, 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 in person when we meet in October. But before that, you know, last 20 years, first reflection, I can't believe it's been 20 years and how fast life goes. And uh, a, a wise person told me once, you know, days go slowly and years fly by. And that's that's what it feels like. Every day is full and you feel like, you know, you have all this time in the world and then you look back and you gosh, 20 years. And so it didn't go as planned in the book 
of INSEAD, Republic <laughs> of INSEAD. I never managed to uh, get into a research organization after my um, MBA. But I do come from research and I do come from IT and technology and mathematics and computer science. So I ended up working for a Norwegian IT company that built search engines. And I was um, running their kind of strategic consultancy. So we would go into big organizations that need to implement an information platform. And uh, it would be somebody like uh, Financial Times, or it could be a big bank, or it could be a police unit, or it could be, you know, IBM or Dell. And then we would build internal enterprise search the way that Google would do external search. And eventually we got bought by Microsoft. And uh, I stayed on and I was responsible for integrating this computer science uh, IT company into Microsoft. And that was a super interesting experience because they do this extremely well. And somewhere a couple of years down the line from that point, I was pregnant with my child number three and uh, realized that I really can't uh, work evenings and weekends or travel to Seattle and that I really need to work with companies with you know, local focus for a while. And so I uh, left. And um, to be perfectly honest, I was really tired with, you know, the pregnancies and the babies and the work and the travel. And so I decided to try to be a board member for a while. And I was very lucky with timing because Norway had just introduced quota equality, if you wish. So either sex, at least 40% on the board. And uh, they were looking for women with PL background, leadership background. And um, the only women that they could find in those positions in Norway were either in shipping or in finance. And so if it was a tech company, they, they uh, noticed me because I had some PL uh, responsibility and I had some MA experience uh, with this tech company. So I ended up being on the board of a few companies and uh, learned a lot about board work. We can get back to that. But basically, that's where I stayed. And uh, that was um, 15 years ago and uh, maybe 16 years ago. Sorry, 14 years ago. And uh, I've been on the board of maybe 30, 40 companies since then. Uh, some small. I really like deep tech very kind of research-based, out-of-university kind of uh, tech and helping them to make a business. But um, if you want to live from board work, then you also have to... That's where I put my money, by the way, in these small companies. But often it's uh, it's not the best investment strategy, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, if you want to live from board work, you also need to have a couple of major companies in your portfolio. So I try to balance that. And um, that that's what I've been doing, really. And suddenly, um, you know, I have four children aged uh, 10, 12, 14, and uh, 16. And the 16-year-old guy is uh, 195 tall oh, and wears, wears shoe size 46, European size, and is a dedicated swimmer. <laughs> 
and uh, and he took uh, something from you. He did something. Yeah, he did something <laughs> from me. And right. uh, his father usually says he th- he took his good looks and uh, my uh, my, <laughs> my really? swimming. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, so how do you actually? How did you manage four kids and even a board career, which? If you have that many boards, it becomes more than a full-time job. But I have one son, six and a half at, at this time. And some days I, I'm like, yeah. I don't know how someone with two kids manages, never mind you with four kids. And yeah. so, the career. So, you know, there is, there is a background story to every story. And so the background is that um, Andreas, my husband, He's Norwegian. He's a friend of mine from uh, studies in Oslo. And we've been dating since I was 25. And we married when I was 30. And I went to INSAD quite late. I was 33 at the time we were at INSAD. And so uh, we came back to Norway. Uh, and I wanted to, you know, at least establish myself in on the business side of things after academia. So we didn't really try for kids immediately. But then we started trying and it didn't turn out to be the easiest job in the world, given all my travel. I learned later, though. Mm. And so I was so I wasn't that keen on children to begin with. But once we couldn't have one, I got actually very keen. And, uh, you know, life is what happens while you're making other plans. So I never thought I would have more than two children. I'm from originally from Yugoslavia. Two children is a norm there, and I was that's the model of a family I have in my head. And you know, I was hoping for two, would be very happy with one, and that's it. And I was always laughing at people when they told me, you know, they had an unplanned child. I was like, you know, it's either irresponsible or stupid <laughs> or both. I mean, where which which age are we living in? And here I am with two very planned children and two more unplanned kids. Uh, and so, you know, but once you once you wish for them uh, and you end up in a situation where you actually are pregnant, you, you know, you, you, you are grateful. Yeah. Although surprised. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, they, they simply um, arrived. And I think at some point you just have to kind of accept the chaos in your life. Mm. And there is there is always both more children and more activity and more work to be done than you can possibly achieve. So this this wish for control and wish for perfection, you have to leave at the door, whatever door you're entering. And uh, you kind of learn to uh, go with the flow and to um, do your best and uh, sometimes uh, accept that, you know, it's nowhere near what you maybe are capable of doing or you wish you were doing, but it's, it just has to be good enough. Mm. And, you know, after all these years, I've also been an entrepreneur the last five years, and it was actually a very bumpy ride. And I can tell you all kinds of, you know, fuck-ups I've done <laughs> with that as well. But um, just, uh, just um, a couple of months ago, really, half a year ago, I discovered a book by somebody called Benjamin Hardy, and the guy called Dan Sullivan. And Dan Sullivan is a really, really good mentor to some of the best entrepreneurs in the US, at least. And they wrote about this book called Focus. Uh, it, it's the gap, not the gain. 
gain, not the gap, basically. And the idea is that, you know, we, we, we give ourselves a goal and we think it's a linear journey. And, you know, as entrepreneurs, we are never quite happy with how far we've gotten. And we always focus on what's left and what's not done. And it's the gap, right? And this whole book is about psychology, especially applicable to perhaps entrepreneurs and I guess leaders in general, successful people. They always look on what's next and what's not done yet. And he, he's trying to make a point that you really have to stop and also look backwards mm. and uh, focus on the gain. And, uh, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do that going mm. forward. And it applies to personal life. It applies to, you know, not always focusing on, you know, the room that the kids should be tidying or, you know, the, the, the healthy food that they should be eating. Uh, it focuses on all the good stuff that they are doing at the moment and what they're good at. But it, it, it goes for me as well. So I actually try to be quite happy with what I've achieved uh, today and uh, not worry too much about all the stuff I haven't achieved. So I guess that's a part of part of the answer. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, three things I wrote down here, deep tech, fuck-ups and, um, and startups. <laughs> so whichever way, do you want to comment on any of those? Yeah. So deep tech, very much about technology developed at the borderline of research, right? And it could be AI, artificial intelligence, or it could be materials technology, or it could be network technology, or it could be uh, communication technology and VR. And, and I'm really, really curious at, you know, what's next and how you can make it into a good service for people. I think that technology companies have uh, spent way too much of their money and the best uh, heads in the world on, um, you know, making money from digital ads. And mm. uh, I think there's so many interesting health problems, um, polarization problems, education problems uh, that could be solved by tech. And uh, I really am excited when I find technology that I believe is uh, really unique. Everybody says that they have a unique technology, but you know, 90% of entrepreneurs haven't done their market research, really. You know, <laughs> they say it's unique because they believe they're very smart. But when you find something that you really understand is at the edges and it is a good idea, it has the right direction and the right team, then I, I, I'm in on it, not for the money, but for the journey. Mm -mm. And uh, it really has been very, very educational because the development of technology in the last uh, 20 years and in the last five years and in the last one year has been exponential. And so suddenly, you know, I find myself in a position where before I had to excuse myself for being a techie in a board. Now, Everybody wants to ask me, well, how do we apply AI to our business? What does it mean to my business? You know, And in order to help them understand that, you actually have to understand where AI comes from and where it's going, right? So uh, it, it's, it's a change in the business environment. And this focus on deep tech is a very good learning mm. process, really. Mm. So where is it coming from and where is it going, AI? So AI is basically 
you know, a technology that we've been talking about since 1960s. And for a long time, it was, it had its uh, winter in a way, because, you know, it promised a lot and it didn't deliver on that in the early days. And you had to basically keep quiet that you're an AI fan. You know, you were, you were defined either as a social Sorry, a, a science fiction fan, or an an, an you know an an, an idiot really. <laughs> uh, now, in the last uh, let's say ten years, but especially perhaps in the last five, we had this breakthrough with deep learning algorithms that make it possible to work really efficiently in a way that the theory was there, but the practice wasn't possible. And so it's this exponential development on data, algorithms, computing power, and network that make AI suddenly surpass human ability in many ways when it comes to analytics and prediction. And I think that many businesses, all businesses, should be able to figure out how can this improve me and it's not replacing people, but it is just making them more efficient. And what's really worrying me is that I think people either hate it and say, you know, we're going to forbid it or we're, you know, you can't do that. It's the most powerful tool we have at the moment. But at the same time, there are the others who say, you know, it should do everything, including our politics and our leadership and our boards. And, and you know, giving up your agency as a person, as a human, as a leader that's the completely wrong way to go. So, you know, it's a tool, but it's a very powerful tool. And I think it's a tool that will shape every industry and every country, and there'll be a lot of politics and there'll be a lot of money. Yeah. And, you know, I really hope that uh, more people than just, you know, five big ones um, get in on the game. And it's about getting people involved, activated, finding the best way to use it in your region because I think you can only be good at something you've always been good at and something you've always cared about, right? So not everybody's supposed to be Silicon Valley. So Norway has a lot of energy, skill, and resources. We are really good at uh, healthcare, public welfare, if you wish. Yeah. So, so we can create super efficient, well-distributed services in these areas, and, you know, you, we can make as much money of renewable energy as we did on oil and gas, but you mm. need to make space for it in the, in the society. And so that, that has been kind of my, um, my side job. I've been doing a lot of uh, talks about, you know, how's technology changing the society and where's the opportunity uh, in that change? Right. So, I mean, you mentioned earlier, you didn't go into uh, the teaching or, well, you are research, coming from yeah. teaching, but research. But in a way, looking at your profile, you are in a way into the educational side of things through your podcast. So maybe you tell us a little bit about yeah. this. Yeah. So again, background to this story is that I've always liked to teach and uh, I... Um, when I told my, I was a, I was a, a fellow at um, Magdalen College at Oxford University. I was doing uh, research and teaching in maths, computer science. And when I told them I'm leaving academia to go to INSEAD, they were saying, they said, you know, it's very shallow. You know, they don't do real research there. They do only, you know, these cases, and that's that's not, you know, serious 
education and science. But to be honest, Milena, I fell in love with the Harvard Business School case method. And this idea of having to read a little bit before every class, but actually being active in the classroom, this flipped classroom idea, worked wonders. We got to know each other. We understood a few basic concepts and we got to apply them there and then. And, you know, I remember more of what I learned at INSEAD by remembering cases. You know, I still remember the stupid mini-mills. <laughs> you know what I remember? What do you remember? Break, the Schultheis Hospital. There you go. You see? You know, forever. And then you, can, and then you can backtrack to the concepts that it was supposed to teach you, right? And you can yeah. also think about what has changed. So I, I really want to make general education for lifelong learning, but in this flipped classroom model available. The one problem that I think we have both at INSAD and at Harvard is that these cases are not being created fast enough. Mm. I know that INSAD has a case factory, and I really hope that we all can contribute to this case factory, not just a couple of professors, because innovation is going so fast that I think you need to create 100 new cases, you know, 10 per subject or five per subject every year, mm. right? Or you need to update them. And so this bottom-up content creation, this creation of relevant, innovative, educational uh, stories, this, this looks a little bit more like, you know, a mix of a YouTube influencer with a Harvard Business School case method. And so the third idea here I had a few years ago is that podcasts are wonderful. You know, people think Joe, Joe Rogan and, you know, yeah. very informal stuff and, you know, but actually the format of an audio book, mm. the format of audio is a wonderful efficiency thing. You know, I've been, I've been um, hooked on Audible. Yeah. For the last uh, really five years, and I just checked my library there, and I have 670 books from Audible. Now, I should really have five times 12, because that's the yeah. sale that they gave me. But because they keep recommending books in a really good way, you know, I've discovered books that I wouldn't have discovered otherwise. And because I can listen to these books while I drive or while I sit on a plane or while I weed my garden, I've actually found time to read that I haven't had since high school, really, yeah. you know. And so I think that by combining sound with the Harvard Business School case method by a new way to produce content that is also moving faster, you know, with the times, I think we could create a really interesting lifelong learning institution and it would be kind of a, a flexible micro-learning thing that you, you don't necessarily need to get a degree, but it would be nice to get some badges or something. And I think that if you show this interest to learn new stuff and you learn it from a relevant source, maybe the employers could also fund it. Maybe the employers could... Uh, incentivize you, you know, maybe you could get um, an extra week free because you have spent a week of your personal time actually educating yourself. 
Mm. You know, so I think there are so many new business models. There are new ideas also for the development of society, because I think um, many countries talk about lifelong learning. I think the biggest political problem we have with AI and with all the development is the jobs situation. You know, one is polarization. So, you know, the heads you really need, you can't find. And the others are becoming bullshit jobs too fast. And um, and then you have this other thing where, you know, I think you need to develop everybody and jobs are not disappearing, but they are morphing. Yeah. And how do you help people be a part of that evolution? Mm. And World Economic Forum has written a lot about the future of jobs. Um, OECD has great reports on this. Everybody agrees that this is a problem. Nobody really has a solution. Yeah, yeah. So... To switch from this to boards or go back to boards and my interest there is women on boards in particular. I've had my brush with, uh, with I did, uh, I was on the board of a fund in Sweden for five years. Then I have an advisory fund uh, board uh, here in Bulgaria at the moment. But I'm keen to hear your experience because you've had so many boards. So yeah. you mentioned how you got the first one. So it's now 15 years, you said? Yeah. Of board work, yeah. Plus and minus, 30, yeah. 30 plus boards. So what change have you seen from the first board you had and okay, where you so, are today? So I'll, I'll, I'll actually uh, add a couple of uh, points before that. Uh, the biggest change, I would say, is that boards have professionalized from being, you know, a kind of a gentleman's club uh, what did they say? Uh, male, pale, and uh, something else that uh, rhymes. <laughs> to uh, stale was the last word. <laughs> to actually really being more diverse, but uh, really diverse in terms of backgrounds. So as I mentioned, you know, having a tech background is not necessarily a disadvantage. Now everybody wants a techie, but a techie with a positive experience of digital transformation. Mm. The other experience that's really interesting is um, that uh, sustainability and compliance are a super important topic now in boards. And, you know, you don't just want these, uh, uh, you know, uh, idealists that say we should do this, but you want somebody that can explain to you how is this a necessary part of your business? You know, how is this a tool for growth? Uh, I think that boards are becoming both more strategic, but also more responsible. And there is a huge amount of regulation that gives you a very serious amount of responsibility and financial responsibility as well. And you you can't be on a board that you're not feeling quite uh, safe about. You know, you have to like them. You have to understand the business. You have to like the business and you have to like the team. And so, I'll, I'll just also comment on, you know, how to get there. I think, you know, many people uh, both would like to be on a board and should be on a board. It gives you a really good understanding of, uh, you know, why the CEO or the, you know, top level management actually have their hands tied much more than you than you think they have, you know. And you understand how these different ownership groups set the frame for what your business can achieve. It's a super interesting experience and it's an experience more in leadership than really in business or in finance. 
but it will give you a very good and deep and broad insight into whatever industry you go into. Now, the pitch that you have to have to go onto boards is to find the company where you really have an idea of how they should change. You know, you, do, you don't start with a company that has a big brand and, you know, that'd be a really cool place to be on the board. But find a company where you have an idea of how they should be, what they should be doing and how they should be doing it. And you find the contact and you on the board and you tell them, I really have this idea I would like to discuss with you for this company. And always think about what you can contribute to the company and not what the company can give you. Because too many people say, I want to go on a board because, you know, it's very good for relations and I want to learn. Yeah, mm. And, you know, nobody needs a board member so they could educate the board member. Actually, they want a board member that will help them change their game. Now, the problem that most companies have is that you can't have a board member that is great in finance, great in legal, great in organizational, great in operational, and great in, tech, let's say, digital. So you need to make a team, but you need this team to be able to work together. So very often, the biggest mistake I've made on boards is that, you know, I was really good in digital transformation and disruption, but I was very impatient. And I was frustrated with all these uh, CEOs with corporate background, with industrial background, with financial background that really didn't believe that this digital transformation is that important and that fast. And so I was actually an element of frustration in that board. So I have learned how to work now with the organization and with the leadership and with the board so that, you know, we push the process and the agenda, but it's not just my agenda, it's the board's agenda and and you know it's a special dynamics and it's they really need you to help them but they they want to be a part of the process and yeah. you want to be a part of all the other processes not just whatever is your strength hmm. so i think uh, finding companies you really would like to transform and if that exact company doesn't have a board position for you you'd be surprised how the investor person that you're trying to sell this idea to without asking for anything back will suddenly figure out where to use you mm. elsewhere mm. because they really need people who can help them change their game mm. and i can really recommend working on boards and if you are on a board i can also recommend being an investor and mm. i wasn't a big investor uh, in these companies i was in but i always try to have a little skin in the game because it makes you think very differently about the investments, about the timeline, about the kind of people you get in, you know. And uh, I recommend boards. And I think this idea of, you know, having women on boards, that's very old news in Norway. Now it's about, you know, having age diversity. We want young people. But actually, I'm beginning to insist on actually keeping some of the old people as well. Yeah. Because, you know, I think there is a, a, a very extreme age discrimination now where everybody wants, you know, people straight out of university and the new heads. But if they don't use and develop the old heads, uh, you lose the industrial strength you have. Mm. So anyway, I yeah. think boards have become a, 
a more interesting place to participate. And I think it should be a goal to all of us at INSAD to have one or two. I, I live from this so so I can, because I don't have a full-time job, I can allow myself to have more. But a board actually requires more than the hours that you're there. Yeah. It requires you to do all this thinking and working in between the meetings, mm. which is why I'd say one board position is maybe kind of a 20%, 20 yeah. position if yeah. you're a member and the 50% position if you're a chairman. Yeah, yeah. So switching gears again, giving back to INSEAD, uh, in particular, we fundraised together with you for the first reunion. So you and Susanna were part of the team. And I just want to, as we are, our since then, we've gone to great, from strength to strength. So we have 430,000 in our fund at the moment, but uh, uh, we want to get even better <laughs> there. So what is the what is the what would you say about giving yeah so i think there is a very hard competition between the business schools and uh, all of us that have been to insad like insad hopefully <laughs> i love it because i think it has diversity at a level that uh, i haven't seen anywhere else uh, but at a very high level you know so it's different uh, both ethnicities but also way of thinking way of choosing to live your life afterwards and uh, entrepreneurship you know it's not big industrial companies it's not it's it's this combination of big industrial and public sector and entrepreneurship that i really really love about insad and uh, so i think we need to help them keep developing and i know that it costs a lot of money so the way i see this fund is not just you know a nice new building or a couple of studentships, uh, but actually uh, uh, a safety, a security, uh, uh, a financial kind of backing so that the school can continue to attract really cool professors, uh, that it can develop the professors it has by attractive salaries and that it can continue to develop perhaps even the services that it offers. Mm. You know, maybe... This will be what it takes to, 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 to get into lifelong learning in a profitable way. Mm. Maybe this will be what it takes to uh, define a new, um, a, a new area, a new you know, chair and the, the, the ecosystem around it to actually build whatever you need to uh, build in order to be ahead of the game. I love the quote. I often quote three criminals actually when i do my uh, talks uh, one is willie sutton that used to rob banks and he was asked why do you rob banks willie well because that's where the money is so it's it's a good business strategy to go where the money is and the other one is uh, wayne gretzky you know why do you, why is it good to play hockey well it's because i'm not where the puck is i'm where the puck is going to be and so i think you know this will help instead be where the puck is going to be mm. and the last one is actually my old boss that got indicted for um stuff that I won't go into now, but uh, a super good uh, techie guy, a super good uh, business guy, a super good um, sales guy. And uh, he, we grew early point from 120 employees to a thousand employees in three years. 
in this company that got bought by Microsoft, and it's a great company. And he used to remind us that speed is no replacement for direction. You know, so having the the stability of financial background like these funds that we are creating will also give INSEAD uh, the patience, the resilience to keep going at the path, even if it takes maybe five years longer than op- uh, originally planned. So I think what Ilian is doing now, uh, what has been done through his agency, basically at INSAD and his team, and it's great stuff. So yeah. I really, really hope that they have the capacity to see it through. And so yeah. that's where I guess we come in. Fully agree there. Uh, the INSEAD endowment has gone from, I, from memory to something like between 40 and 50 million euro when we were there, or maybe 60. And at this time, it's close to 400. So it's a million. So it's a big difference in 20 years. Um, and in the last, uh, in the last uh, 10 years, it has doubled. So there and you I go. I hope we invest some of it into some AI stuff happening in Europe <laughs> at the moment. We can ask The way them. that Stanford has kind of managed mm. to get very rich on Silicon Valley. Mm. Yeah. So in my last bit, quick fire questions, if we may start. Your proudest achievement? My four kids. Success for you is? Uh, having a balanced life where you kind of don't lose, lose yourself, don't burn out uh, before you're kind of done. Happiness is? Being able to say this is good enough. Biggest regret? None. <laughs> nice. What keeps you awake at night? Oh, that's a long answer, actually. But uh, I don't... I try not to... So I I was one of these uh, entrepreneurs that was awake at night because I wasn't sure where the salaries are going to come from, etc. And I tried to force myself not to try solve problems at night. You never solve them at night and they always seem 10 times bigger than they should be. So go have a glass of milk and, uh, you know, some honey and uh, try to sleep again. (laughs) (laughs) Wish you had known or someone had told you that life is very long and you have to enjoy the phase that you're in. You know, don't hurry so badly towards the next phase. And the other thing is that, um, you know, there is not one goal in your life. Life is a journey. And your CV is not just, you know, a scorecard. It's actually a journey. And enjoy the journey. I wish somebody told me much earlier, you know, don't hurry. Enjoy what you're at right now. If you had to do it all over again, what would you change? I would be a bit uh, less impatient and I would be uh, a little bit uh, less uh, hard on myself. Retirement ever? Never? So retirement in the sense that, uh, you know, I don't have to force myself to work for money. I guess I'm I'm already doing that. I'm I'm done. Stop working because I feel working is a chore. Never. I I really believe that uh, you know we, I think many of us will live until we are 100 because of all the medical stuff. I hope I keep my mind quite long and I hope that I keep it busy with something that allows me to enjoy life, you know, and it could be caring about grandchildren, but it could also be renovating an old house in Montenegro, and it could be learning new stuff about the latest in AI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with you there. 
So if you had to pick one book everyone should read, what would you recommend? Oh, The Gain, Not the Gap. And the same team has written Who, Not How. Uh, I think Inside Guys needs to read, need to read that. But uh, a book that I really, really enjoyed is called AI Superpowers by a guy called Kai Fu Lee. And he talks about how China and US are the only superpowers in AI going forward. Why? And how differently they go about it and how important culture and history is in developing your future in technology. And um, it's a really, really cool book. And there is, it's related to something a woman called Mariana Mazzucato writes a lot about mission-based economy, which I really think is a very interesting reading. And if mm. I may, one more, Joseph Stiglitz has a really good book about explaining this transition from market liberalism to this more kind of, uh, you know, uh, stakeholder economy, a triple bottom line, new way of thinking about creating value and what's value. And I, and I think uh, we need to read that because we've been educated in this Chicago School of Economics, mm. very kind of markets fix everything. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah. Most admired public person for you? Oh, oh I don't know. A lot. I, I really do, I can't... Uh, Let's say uh, Ursula van der Leyen at the moment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Most despised public person? Donald Trump. Okay. Last one. Are you coming to reunion? Absolutely. Nice. So as a reminder to everyone, October 6th and 7th with gala at the Chateau on the 7th, by the way. So bring your dresses and your black tie. And this was a conversation with Sylvia Seres. It's official now. For those who didn't guess it so far, chief editor and founder of Lauren.tech, independent director, a mother of four, and I suspect an inspiration to many. Thank you so very much, Sylvia, for your time and for your generosity and looking forward to seeing you live back in Fonti soon. Thank you so much. You are listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Dare Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.